Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Carla Nappi, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I just finished talking with Tong Lam um, about his new book, A Passion for Facts, Social Surveys and the Construction of the Chinese Nation State, 1900 to 1949. That's uh, just out with the University of California Press, um, and it came out in 2011. Now, we tend to take for granted that we have bodies, that we have physical bodies that are measurable. If I were to ask you how tall you were, how much you weighed, or how old you were, you may not want to give me an honest answer to the question, but you wouldn't be completely shocked by the nature of the question itself. Lamb's book explores the practices and the technologies through which these kinds of questions and this kind of way of thinking about what a body was and how it related to other groups of bodies and collectivities and ideas of society became possible in the context of China in particular during the first half of the 20th century. He looks very closely at the construction of what he calls the Chinese nation state through censuses, through social surveys, through diaries, through fiction, and through other kinds of social and political technologies. Now, this is a a fascinating and very rich and very focused study um, that's not just interesting from the perspective of Chinese history, although it certainly is, but also from the perspective of anyone who's interested in the history of science, uh, the history of social science in particular, and the history of modernity. Hi, Tong. Hi, Kara. We're here today to talk with Tong Lam about his really interesting recent book, A Passion for Facts, Social Surveys and the Construction of the Chinese Nation State, 1900 to 1949. Now, this is an exceptionally rich work. It's one of those books that you can sit down um, and read in a couple of sittings, but it's so full of stories and anecdotes and really fascinating studies of primary sources that even as a scholar of China, I didn't know about. Um, It's wonderful. Um, And it analyzes the rationale, politics, and passions behind the production of facts, um, especially social facts in early 20th century China. Um, So thank you, Tong, so much for agreeing to talk about your book today. I'm really excited to, um, to talk more with you about it. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Tong, could you start us out um, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? Sort of what brought you to academic um, study of Chinese history? Sure. Um, um, I currently teach at the University of Toronto um, as a historian of modern China. And I did my PhD at the University of Chicago. And I was originally from Macau. And I did my um BAs in economics. Um, so somehow I thought that people who study economics are people who are interested to um, studying political economy, but I obviously uh, misunderstood the whole discipline. So somehow in that process, uh, I ended up becoming a historian. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, um, it turned out that my first book is actually talking about facticities and empirical evidence. Right. <laughs> That's perfect. So actually, so how did you come to work on this particular topic for your first book? 
Um, it was in the uh, graduate seminar in my first year uh, at Chicago uh, when I was working on a set of primary sources in uh, one particular county in North China uh, during the uh, land reform projects. I, I looked at a set of um, census and social investigations, and I was fascinated by um, the type of information that they correct and the type of information that they um, uh, uh, put together about uh, the present societies in these particular counties. And particularly, uh, I saw some of the information such as um, the actual uh, properties that uh, people own in each household. And I found it's really interesting, for instance, that um, animals was um, counted up to like each one in, in exact terms. So the a household, per, for instance, will would own like half of the house, a quarter of a uh, a, a, a cow, for instance. So I thought really that the position of those information and this, and then this really led me to um, to ask this question of what is going on here. Um, it's no longer about the actual data themselves, but it's the obsession with facts and facticities. Right, that's wonderful. And that, and you knew that from your first year in graduate school. Right. That's amazing. Wow. Well, this is, um, this very much is a kind of question and the kind of really, um, fascinating insight that emerges in the course of this book, which is all about the production of something that we tend to take for granted now, which is the very idea of a fact, right? I mean, how, do, how does the idea of a fact as an epistemic, um, concept emerge in different local contexts? And this is, um, a book that looks at that in tremendously interesting detail in the context of um, the early 20th century in China. Now, this is, if we can kind of jump right in and get right into the book, the, you start out um, in the introduction by setting the stage for the rest of the work to come. And so the introduction kind of introduces the fact that the book is going to look at um, the, as you mentioned, the emergence of the idea of a concept of a fact and looks at the production of these facts and the way that the production of these facts, as you um, bring out so nicely in the book, really transforms the nature of governance and makes the human world um, knowable and manipulable um, and sort of countable in ways that weren't possible before. Um, and this is really based on a study of, or, or largely based on among many sources that you look at, a study of these social surveys um, and censuses that you alluded to um, when you were talking about how you got into this topic. Um, so, uh, to sort of get us into this, um, you mentioned that you looked at, you may not have looked at, but you mentioned that there exist more than 9,000 surveys carried out in China between 1927 and 1935. Is that right? 9,000. Um, this is not to say that you looked at all of them, right, obviously, but. Right, right. And I think that was, uh, um, um, as a. Um, a movement that was tremendously important that I think um, we have kind of overlooked until now, because when I look at those information, I just found out that realized that in fact that you know every kind of um, uh, material, secondary materials, are somehow alluded to that they are collecting facts uh, about Chinese society at the time, and so um, yeah, it was a huge um, operation. Wow. 
It's, it's amazing. And, um, you, so after you set the stage by introducing this larger set of arguments, and we'll continue to look at these arguments in more detail as we get into the book, um, you talk about, um, not necessarily the, if we're talking about social facts, um, not necessarily the fact part of it, but you start off by talking really interestingly about the social part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and you say early in this introduction that the emergence of society, um, as a side of political discourse was really connected with the rise of social surveys. So for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about this idea of society um, as it was brought into um, China and the, you know, the really interesting history of the translation of this terminology and the way it came to play um, a role as a concept in um, early 20th century? Yeah, sure. And I think I have to backtrack a little bit about how this project came into being in the first place. Sure, um, sure. Because when I, when I first um, tried to um, do something about social surveys, I was initially thinking about uh, writing something on the construction of society. Uh, as you know, um, Chicago uh, is really the place for doing this kind of work uh, for South Asian scholars. A lot of work has been done uh, on census and statistics and the production of ethnographic knowledge um, uh, in the case of India and other places. And so when I conceptualized this project, I was really thinking along the same lines and thinking perhaps I can write something about how the social work in China came into being. And I think that <clears throat> was the initial question. But as soon as I began this project, I realized that there was another question that has to be investigated and understood. It was essentially the question of facts and facticities. Um, because after all, when they are talking about investigating society, there's an assumption that <clears throat> that that, that the society is an object that can be investigated. There are um, 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 things that can be observed. So in other words, um, there's another question that exists prior to that. And particularly in the case, when I look at the Chinese cases, and a lot of the sources that I use, and I was struggling constantly in between these two questions. Am I writing about the history of facts in China, or am I writing about uh, the construction of the social in China? So this this remained to be a major tension in my work, and certainly during the entire dissertation process. And so this comes to the question about the construction of the social and society. And I think uh, what is particularly fascinating in this moment of time in Chinese history was that um, the notion of society, or particularly how we translate society, is a term sehui. Uh, didn't really exist in China until the end of the 19th century. In fact, there were competing concepts, competing terminology uh, that tried to translate this concept society. And so I started with that particular point and tried to suggest that, in fact, the different terminology have different, different implications. Um, and so that's the sort of, in a way, that sort of start out the, the, the one of the, the contexts, one of the conditions and say um, how society as a concept, as an object of investigation actually came into being. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that was really helpful. Thank you. Um, now... In the course of this discussion and in the course of the introduction, um, the chapter very helpfully introduces really a wealth of secondary and theoretical literature on, you know, a range of uh, subfields. So ranging from the history of science, colonial modernity, ideas of facticity, ideas of society, and all kinds of other topics. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the literature that you found particularly helpful or anything that's really stood out for you in shape? Your ideas for this book? 
Um, in some ways, a lot of these cons- uh, ideas and arguments that you just mentioned, uh, they are, they, they all play a very crucial role in, 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 in conceptualizing these projects. And when I was, again, uh, back to the dissertation stage and I was thinking about, um, how do I position myself in relation to those, uh, bodies of literature? So that's really much, um, trying to position this project in between, uh, those debates. And particularly, I think, um, because I feel that there's a huge vacuum in Chinese historiography that um, not many scholars have actually worked on those areas. and But at the same time, I also found myself get, getting myself into trouble precisely because I try to address so many issues simultaneously. Um, so so I think that, again, you know, I, 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 it was a productive process, but also it, it's a tremendously challenging process. And um, in terms of the particular debate, and I think certainly the whole um, debate of canonical modernity was crucial because I think a lot of scholars, uh, until at least until very recently, like to think about Chinese history in terms of this approach of China center approach, right? Only looking at China uh, in isolation, relatively speaking, and try to look at the long-term continuities and arguing that, in fact, that, you know, without the colonial encounter, China would be moving in a certain way anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I kind of appreciate their uh, argument to a degree because in a way that was trying to moving away from the earlier approach of thinking about China was simply reacting to the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, as I argue in this book, in fact, you know, the, the actual story was far more complicated. And I think, uh, and I, I do think that many scholars now are increasingly moving beyond this older debate between the so-called, you know, the fair bank approach to um, China reaction to the West or the China center approach. But there is a way in which we can actually think about how certain ideas and practice actually circulates uh, and China was part of the story. Absolutely. And in your, um, I mean, because you've mentioned that this project has had um, such a long germination stage for you, right? I mean, you really began thinking about this in graduate school. Is there um, any moment that sticks out in your mind as an aha moment? Is there any uh, individual piece of secondary literature or any specific author who really struck you when you um, read their work as offering a really key crucial insight for the way you were thinking about your own project? Um, no, it wasn't really one particular author or a set of literatures. I think that's really, again, come back to the, to, to the very starting point. I was thinking about this in relation to several bodies of literature. But I think um, um, there was moments that there's certain kinds of primary sources, perhaps we can talk about later, that somehow, you know, make me feel that, oh, you know, I found something interesting here and there. But for conceptually, I think that was a project that has been uh, always in something that I've been thinking about and revising along the way. And, and I think also during the process of writing this, um, book, uh, new scholarship also came into being. I remember even the very last moment, uh, when I submitted the revised transcript, uh, uh the manuscript, just before I su- submitted the revised manuscript, um, I, uh, read N. Stoller's book, uh, along the archival grains and then realized I'm talking about something rather similar, not identical, but rather similar. And I was really glad that in fact, someone was talking about it in a whole different context. Mm-hmm. That's a great book too. Yeah. Um, is that always the way it works? <laughs> it's like right after you send off the page proofs, then you discover a book that you think would have, you know, completely changed the way you would have thought about. 
things. Right. Know, at least many of us who have written books, I'm sure, have <laughs> experienced that. So as a historian of science, I have to ask, um, because mm-hmm. what really struck me here really pleasantly, um, and I was really fascinated by your treatment of the, really the transforming and transformative idea of science as it emerges in the context of the early 20th century in China. And it really plays a very important role in your story. So I'll ask you kind of um, more specific questions about that later, but um, can you say a little bit about the importance of the idea of science as it shapes this story for our listeners? Yes, I think um, I can address it at at two different levels. One, I think empirically, uh, science become a very important claim for this particular generation of Chinese intellectuals. Um, and, and it came with certain kinds of connotation. In some ways, uh, the claims of science that and, and the connotation that came with it uh, remain to be rather important throughout um, the rest of the 20th century. China, in fact, even today. Um, so I think in a way that sort of, I was looking at the very beginning moment in which how people use claims about science, uh, scientific claims um, of universal truth and so forth uh, to make an arguments um, about um, their vision of society. Um, but in a different level, like conceptually, uh, how this body of literature uh, in science studies actually inform my work. And I, I think one of the very basic uh, assumptions that I agree with a lot of the um, scholars who work in science studies is that um, when you are witnessing a major political and social upheavals, um, we are also witnessing a major restructuring of knowledge itself. And I think the story was very much um, that story in the Chinese context. Mm-hmm. That's a really eloquent way of putting it. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so this um, introduction really sets up what's to come. Um, and you go on in a series of chapters looking at particular case studies that really um, develop and broaden and enrich this story and move us forward. So let's dive into the next chapter. So this chapter opens with a quotation by Mao Zedong from 1941, in which he discusses the idea of um, seeking truth from facts. And this idea uh, or this term um, really plays a large role in the chapter to come and really the book to come. Late Qing and Republican practitioners of surveys also use the term seeking truth from facts. And can you talk a little bit about what this term meant in the context of early modern scholarship of evidential research or Kaohsiung research and how the meaning of the term changed um, for late Qing and Republican scholars? Yeah, sure. Um, in the early modern period, uh, when they're talking about seeking truth from facts, uh, was essentially looking at the text itself and try to search for theological and textual evidence to authenticate the text so that to make sure the text they're reading are in fact the correct text. Um, by reading the correct text, the argument goes is that, and therefore you can understand uh, the moral principle that were left behind by the Asian sages, right? So you go back to say, how do you, how do you know that what you're doing is in fact truthful? So then you have to go back to the text itself. Um, and that statement has remained sort of remained re- relatively constant. In other words, the, as you said, the, the Leiching, uh, scholars as well, the early Republican scholars continue to use that particular statement to describe what they were trying to do. But by the late Qing time, certainly by the 
the second half of the 19th century, increasingly when they're talking about seeking truth from facts, they are no longer looking as a textual evidence. They're talking about statistics, uh, actual empirical evidence of all kinds. And then you can see that uh, even more obviously uh, in, in the in the Republican period that, that you can talking about, uh, they were talking about architecture. Uh, archaeological evidence, sociological evidence, ethnographic evidence. And so then facts essentially of a totally different kind of empirical evidence that, that could still be textual, but most of them were no longer about theological evidence. Um, they could be artifacts as well and could be very abstract uh, data such as social statistics. And the type of truth that they were looking for was no longer the kind of moral principle from the sages, um, but instead they were thinking about um, trying to understand the mechanisms of um, the, the, the nation state or society uh, or cultural formations. So in other words, they were looking for or uh, thinking about a whole different kinds of of realities and, and facts was to try to find uh, the patterns of those social and political mechanisms. Great. Thank you so much. And it, it's, this is such a fascinating um, piece of scholarship also because you really start to see uh, how the field is changing, right? And I mean, the, sort of the field of the historiography of China. I mean, there was a time not too long ago where the discussion was about, you know, Chinese concepts versus non-Chinese concepts. And I think this is a, a great example of you're, you're really doing a lot to move way past that dichotomous way of thinking about um, the history of science and history of knowledge by really showing how even within Chinese documents, right, even this right. term that has been identified as kind of paradigmatic of Chinese scholarship, the seeking truth from facts, itself gets changed and transformed and translated even within the context of what we retrospectively identify as trans-historical China. Yeah, I think the impact of the story, I think that's sort of also one of the themes that went through the entire book, as you said, is also how sort of the, um, the older concept and category being reconfigurated. Uh, for a uh, uh, contemporary and modern purpose, and and I think one of the the, the footnotes to that to the statement about seeking truth from facts. Um, when I was working on this uh, book manuscripts, um, I spoke with several colleagues, and some of the colleagues who work in different like more contemporary fields, they then they said, "Well, seeking truth from facts." So you're talking about Deng Xiaoping, right? So I think that's also that you know it's kind of interesting. For his historian, uh, at least for modern historians, sometimes we we have forgotten, right? That, that in fact that a lot of this thing. Um, didn't just start off in the modern era. In fact, you, 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 could, you can trace it back in the much older, uh, earlier moments, even though they meant something else. And it's also really enlightening for those of us who do work on the early modern period or what some of us call the early modern period to see the way that these terms that we're familiar with from, you know, 16th and 17th century, century texts really get taken up and translated and transformed um, in the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, this was fascinating for me to see this later history that, you know, I, I'm familiar with this in the context of early modernity. So this was I learned a lot from this. So Thanks. thank you. Thanks. Now, as you um, bring out really beautifully in this chapter, this reappropriation and translation of this idea um, and the way that this um, of ultimately contributes to the emergence of a culture of fact and facticity in China isn't happening in the context of China in a vacuum. Um, so this, you situate this within the formation of um, what you call a culture of fact in Europe um, that in, in some, to some parties and in some levels um, made China seem lacking in comparison. Right. So there's this kind of relationship between what's happening in China and sort of looking at what's also happening um, elsewhere. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
about um, this context of what's happening in China in this period with a broader, um, in the broader story of what's happening elsewhere, because it's not just this emergence of a culture of fact in Europe that you point to, but also um, you talk about how the development of survey-based social science in this period in America also helped shape what's happening in China. Right. Um, and I think, um, first of all, the, the emergency of the cultural facts uh, in the case of Europe happened, uh, it took place a little bit earlier. Right. By the time, by the time in which China, I, I really sort of uh, spend a lot of time, at least in my conceptualization of the project, to make sure that I don't present a story in which the China really lacks certain kind of facts and sort of catching up with the European. Um, so I think that was the one of the things that we, I, I, you can probably see in the in the chapter itself. I, I, I play with this um, uh, different types of empirical evidence a great deal, and and what I was trying to do is suggest that in instead was that the the the, the the apparent action, uh, the, the apparent, um, the apparent lack of facts, uh, was essentially came from the colonial gates. And, but now suddenly in the global colonial context, um, the certain kinds of facts and certain way of thinking about the human world became the dominant mode of thinking. And so the absence of that particular mode of thinking, uh, triggered a whole range of emotional response from the Chinese intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, that was one of the things that I really, um, 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 was struggling with myself as well, because, um, as I, as working on this, and I wasn't entirely sure that, you know, how, how do you deal with the, the question of like the Chinese empirical, uh, evidential research, for instance, empirical, there's a, there was a practice empirical, uh, research prior to that. And so, um, um, I'm lost in track of your question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no problem. It was a um, thinking about how to situate what's going on in China within a larger context, even if um, you mentioned the importance of um, survey-based social science in America and how that's actually oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. has a relationship uh-huh. with what's happening in China at this time. Okay, so I hope I can restart this particular section. <laughs> no I was a problem. bit confused by, by, by myself as well. Um, um, I, I think, okay, first of all, I think that, um, that the moment of this, the rise of the, the social sur- survey or survey-based social science around this time, um, uh, was not a unique Chinese experience. And, and I think, uh, a lot of this thing was already happening in the late 19th century, uh, all over Europe, um, in certainly in the United States too, that you have a story of, uh, social survey movement as well. In fact, that particular term social survey movement, uh, was used by uh, American historians themselves with describing, describing the, 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 uh, the, the rise of, um, uh, this particular type of social investigations. So in a, in, in many ways, so China was sort of became part of this global story, but also it played out very differently in the local context, precisely because um, um, in the case of China, China have a long tradition of um, having some kinds of empirical practices and evidential research being the center of that in the early modern period. But suddenly, I think uh, at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of the Chinese intellectual uh, sort of begin to uh, react to the accusation that was made by European and American observer who claimed that China didn't have facts or empirical practices. And that triggered a range of emotional responses. And for me, that was one of the major driving force of the Chinese social survey movement. And I think that was the difference between the Chinese example and the American case. At the same time, uh, I do want to emphasize that, in fact, as I said, that you do see a lot of uh, similar 
practices and operations all over Europe and other places as well. Uh, in the case of Europe, for instance, in France, for instance, there was also footloaf uh, movements, um, um, anthropologies and sociology uh, going out to collect uh, empirical facts about uh, or ethnographic facts right, about uh, different parts of the, uh, the country as a way of constructing um, um, their imagined community. So I think there was sort of similarity going on as well. Thank you so much. So now that we have this broad um, context set, um, you take us into very specific ways in which this actually starts manifesting in China in really... Um, really fascinating set of examples. And so one of the things that really struck me as being very important to this uh, rise of the fact and this rise of facticity was the importance of numbers um, and numeracy um, as it sort of becomes translated into um, political language. And as you put it, I think political literacy, I mean, even to the point of reshaping um, Chinese bodies that get redefined in terms of quantities and measurable characteristics. And there's this really great image of um, children being measured um, and sort of scaled in the book that I think makes this um, really, uh, really powerful. Now, as part of this story of numbers being really important, um, there's a, there's a discussion in here of the, of a very particular number that took on a tremendous significance for a lot of people in this period and really brings out the kinds of emotional responses that you allude to. And that's the number 400 million. Can you talk a little bit for our listeners about the importance of this number 400 million, um, to estimate the Chinese population at this time? Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's different kinds of uh, discourse about the notion of 400 million. And I, I, I suspect that the original ideas would probably come from the missionaries themselves who make an estimate of the Chinese population. And in fact, during this time, uh, Western observers often have diff difficulty uh, to obtain the exact uh, uh, uh number of the Chinese population. They, uh, so there were debates about that. But the debate itself also implies that the China really doesn't have, didn't have any kind of specific forms of census that was able to produce uh, accurate information about populations. Um, so around this time as well, and for many Chinese nationalists and Chinese intellectuals, um, 400 million become a metaphor that stand in the size and the scale of the nation. Right. And having 400 million, uh, I think Xun Yuxian, Xun Zhongshan uh, also used this term to suggest that the, this is the, uh, the the size of the social body. That so some people would argue that in fact that you know that 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 um, having 400 million is, is, is creates some kind of boundaries. It's like people who belong to the imagined community or people who are being excluded from it. And and what is also interesting was that you also have uh, Manchu Bannermans uh, who argue that you know there were five million um, um, Manchus within the four hundred million um, uh, 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 Chinese social body. So part of this argument is that the four hundred million uh, was a number that is really not about exactitude of the numbers, but it's really the metaphor of the social body. So whether the Manchu Bannerman was included in it, they were still thinking about this as 400 millions. And then when they were being excluded from it, it was still about 400 millions, right? Mm -hmm. But, 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 but as, at some point, 
around that time, um, increasingly you have social scientists, um, including one of the person that I mentioned in the book, uh, Li Jinghan, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, begin to argue that, uh, in fact, that, you know, the, 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 the population of China remains to be 400 million for such a long time is an indication that, in fact, that China didn't have uh, social statistics. It didn't have census, or at, at least accurate census, right? So that was then that become a metaphor that's no longer about the strength of the social body, but it's about the lack of social statistics, the lack of science. Um, and the ignorance of social facts, and and I think so they become so you can begin to shift to see the shift of the discourse surrounding the concept of four hundred million. That's right. Thank. That's great. And thank you so much. And this uh, Li Jinghan example is one of the many points in this book that, uh, upon reading it once, it really it's going to stick with me for a long time. There's this fantastic quote um, by this uh, intellectual on page 35 for listeners who haven't read it yet. And um, that really, I'm just going to read a tiny little bit of it just to give you the flavor of how powerful this use of the um, 400 million number as a critique is. He says, when I went to LM elementary school at six, the Chinese population was said to be 400 million. And the expression 400 million compatriots could be heard everywhere. By the time I graduated from elementary school, the Chinese population was still 400 million. When I graduated from middle school, I read my younger brother's geography textbook. It still said our country's population was 400 million. And then he goes on and he graduates from university and reads his little niece's textbook. He returns to China after studying abroad and looks at textbooks. And it's always this 400 million. And it's just such a great um, quotation that just embodying this critique now, this is um, Lee is one of um, many uh, intellectuals in this period that you write about who are critiquing this um, lack of exactitude in Chinese society. Um, and uh, one of the other ones is someone who many of our listeners may have heard about, but, but perhaps not in this context. And this is the figure um, Hu Shi. Um, he did this in part with a story from 1924 called Mr. Chabadua. I loved this description. I loved your description <laughs> of this story. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, Mr. Chabadua and the, the importance of this figure in this story for our listeners? Right. So Mr. Chabadua was a story that I think many kids in China, even today, they probably still grew up with their stories. Really? And yeah, I, I suspect that's the case. In fact, I, I was just uh, discovered a, a pop song in, in, in Taiwan rather recently, even though it used the same name as the Chabado, even though the, the contents is, you know, has nothing to do with the original story. But I think that somehow that, you know, that the term sort of have its own life as well. But in any case, this is a, a figure that is very consistent with um, the, a lot of what the Western observer um, described about the so-called Chinese national character, right? Mr. Chabdo was someone who, um, doesn't have a, a sense of exactitude. So, so anything that is like, it's almost about the same and then he's always okay. He's kind of easy going, but at the same time, he's the, the, so he was one of those person who, um, sort of embodies, you know, in a way that's the so-called Chinese national character in a way that, that you can show that he's precisely someone who doesn't have, you know, any, uh, interest in facts or science, uh, or science for that matter. And so I think the story, uh, oftentimes, you know, as we know that it, it end up with the story where he ended up dying, uh, because he was sick. And so, 
and he asked someone to find a doctor for him, and then someone ended up finding a uh, a, a, a doctor that was not uh, was treating animals, not humans. <laughs> but because the surname was about the same, and then they said, "Well, it's fine." It's about the same, and then he, so he ended up uh, dying. But before he died, uh, he said, "Well, you know." Whether he's dying or he's staying alive, it doesn't really matter. It's about the same. Uh, so it so it somehow is that story um, that was being presented by intellectual, like we see in this case. Uh, again, it it really suggests that there's a whole generation of Chinese intellectual really sort of begin to move away from what I call the sort of society. Right, that was uh, society has now suddenly become an object of investigation. So in, increasingly, you see intellectual like Hu Xi or Li Jinghan or Lu Xun, for that matter, uh, really become um, uh, assuming at least partially the colonial gates um, for yeah. listeners um i'm sorry to interrupt you but sure. you, brought, you brought up lushun and that was another moment i wanted to ask you about right. can you describe that moment also for our listeners because it's a very kind of famous and very trenchant moment that you describe here um of when he decides to change his career path Right, I think for people who work in China, they all know about the story about Lu Xun. Right. Uh, is that because when when he was, according to his own description, of course, um, that that he, when he was in the classroom and studying medicine in Japan, and he realized that the sick social body, Chinese social body, you, you can't just cure the bodies mm-hmm. uh, because by looking in the particular instance in which he sight, um, it was a uh, according to him that was a, the uh, the the teacher in the classroom was showing uh, a slice in which a, a, a Chinese was being executed by the Japanese soldiers. Uh, in this particular slice, uh, it shows that other Chinese people were surrounding and watching the execution, uh, apparently, you know, was uh, laughing at it, right? So the political apathies become an, uh, uh, an issue for Lu Xuan, who finally concluded that he can't just become a medical doctor to save uh, the bodies. But he um, then began to argue that, in fact, that you know, it was through the techniques of literature, for literature that he wanted to save the soul of the Chinese people. right? And I think that particular story is really well known. But when I was working on the sources, and I, what I found another very interesting moment was actually come back to Li Jinghan. Uh, he had a very similar moment, and he actually described uh, uh, in a classroom that was in, in, the, in the U.S. when he was taking classes about social statistics. The teacher actually asked him about uh, statistics about China, and he was not able to provide any information because there was no Chinese statistics according to him. Right. So, and then so he said that he was very excited about this class at the very beginning. He's always tried to sit at the, at the front row of the classroom, but eventually, because every time when he was asked this kind of question, he was not able to answer, and he felt become very shameful about the fact that he cannot provide any statistic about China. Um, so that he ended up sitting in the back of the classroom hiding from the teacher itself. And I, I thought the story itself was really fascinating in a way that because it somehow uh, almost sounds like Lucian's story was being retold by a social investigator. And it's the action of facts or the, the, the idea of the lack. China was lacking something and they therefore have to catch up. But as I said, all these intellectuals sort of begin to stand away from um, the larger Topic and say, well, we have to look at China from the outside and try to wake up, uh, awaken the people so that they also begin to realize that China was lacking something in this particular case. Uh, so lacking the attitude of science, the notion of facts and exactitudes. Right. And you talk about this in the context of um, what you following Spivak call epistemic violence. Right. 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 And 
Yeah, and and so so and so that 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 the argument there essentially then saying that um unlike the the South Asian cases where you actually have a colonial administration who actually uh, uh impose uh social science um statistics and the whole way of thinking onto the colonial uh, on on the, the the native population in this particular cases um um you don't need to uh, actual formal colonies you don't have to occupiers and and yet the after the this discourse of deficiency of lapse was tremendously powerful uh, was so powerful that in fact it compelled the Chinese intellectuals to repeatedly tell uh, retell the story of lapse right as a way to try to awake the people Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And there's a lot more in that chapter also that I'll point um, listeners to, but um, so, but we'll move on to the next one uh, for now. Now, you move from this really rich story to focusing in on um, the, the national census that took place between 1909 and 1911, which marks the beginning of a movement to produce facts about the social world. And you do a really great job here of comparing this to earlier Qing um, systems of census taking, like the Kangxi atlases. Um, can you say a little bit about what the major differences were between these earlier Qing um, systems of census taking and um, this national census in the early 20th century for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think there was um, the, the certainly that the, when um, uh, European and American observers saying that China didn't have census, that was not true at all. In fact, that China have uh, uh, different kinds of census that exist all the way for the, throughout the entire imperial period. Right? And then one of the, the census that I particularly mentioned was the census at uh, uh, the beginning of the Ming Dynasty uh, in which they was actually used they, they use troops to carry out a particular census in a very massive scale. But one of the major differences between the, the earlier census and the uh, the census uh, that emerged in the beginning of the 20th century was that um, the earlier census actually make up of a whole range of practices. And so as we know, um, the Qing, now many uh, new Qing historians have begun to argue that in fact the Qing wasn't exactly a Chinese dynasty, right? It was made up of different, uh, different regions with different constituencies. So we can actually see the similar practice in census. Uh, for instance, you can see um, there's a different way to deal with the banner population. There's a different way of counting the Muslim population. There are different ways of count or, or, or accounting, find a way to account for the uh, people uh, that was uh, along the frontiers, both inside of um, the empire or even outside the empires. And then with the the, the China proper, that was also using the, a, a very specific type of sensor to count those population. So my argument there was that intentionally that the chain um, is in fact it showed a, a range of uh, sensors. It shows in fact it was a very flexible form of governance, right? It, it really deal with different constitu- constituencies in a different way. Um, the the new census that emerged in 1909, on the other hand, uh, insists on counting the entire population, the entire states, using one single template, using one single format. So I argue that's the one way that you're thinking about the, the shift from a dynastic empire to a nation state, uh, in which the, the social body, right, the population have to be homogenized in a way that to count in the exact same way that each one, it doesn't, regardless of your background, ethnicity, or social class, now you suddenly become a citizen of 
the neo state, right, the emerging nation state. So I think that was one of the differences. And the other major differences was also that in the new sense that emerged in 1909, uh, the state insists on counting each individual. Uh, in the past, they only count certain types of people. Sometimes uh, I also argue um, the, the absence of accurate census, uh, was actually part of the, uh, intention because the, the older census was tied to, um, taxations. So, um, in the case when you have a natural disaster, for instance, um, they would just reduce, um, the, 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 the numbers. So, essentially, there's a form of tax relief. Right. And, and there's a lot of, you know, different things going on in the, in the older census as well. But in any case, it's really not about counting the accurate number. That wasn't the, the whole purpose of it, uh, for the most part at least. But in the new census, you do see that the state, uh, we repeatedly, uh, urge, um, the official to count the exact numbers of the entire population. And another thing that you also have in the new census is that, um, it is no longer tied to the, what I just said, you know, uh, taxation itself, but it's counting the population just for the sake of counting it. And of course, at the same time, there's an implication because that's linked to the whole, uh, 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 a project of uh, establishing the Qing dynasty or the Qing state as a constitutional monarchy. So elections and all these implications, uh, 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 new um, uh, reforms uh, implies that you have to count the exact population so that you can actually implement those projects. So, and, and I think that's a major shift there. Great. Thank you so much. And I think you really compellingly make the case here that this is part of a shift where the individual um, becomes uh, the basic building block of this new social body, right? This transfer in this transformation in the Qing from a nation, from a dynastic empire to a nation state, which you, um, I think, really compellingly show. This is how the individual becomes important in a new way. Well, and also conceptually that when you're thinking about uh, a modern nation state, right, because the, the legitimacy of the nation state comes from the people. So by counting the people, you're essentially making a new claim that you're representing the people. Uh, whereas in the older state, you know, it's no longer about that, uh, that, 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 that whole way of thinking. Right. But as you um, go on, I think really interestingly to show us in the next chapter, this new mode of counting and this new mode of census taking and um, for all of its accuracy and new forms of legibility and um, renewed emphasis on the individual and on direct contact, um, it's not necessarily embraced um, unproblematically by all of the people who are being counted, right? Right. Um, and so the, the next chapter um, raises some really fascinating case studies of um, soul or fears of soul stealing um, and issues of um, sort of problems with actually census taking on the ground. Um, now, this story opens with, or this chapter opens with the story of villagers in 1910, I believe, who burst into the home of a census taker and demanded that he hand over a register of all the souls that he had stolen. Can you describe this um, this case in this moment for our listeners and talk a little bit about um, what sort of how this relates to the broader um, um, kinds of issues that the chapter is looking at. 
Right. I, I think that's also for me, when I was uh, able to find out those sources, I was actually quite excited uh, by it myself because, um, and this is one of the areas that was actually didn't exist in the original dissertation. I didn't realize that, in fact, a lot of things was already uh, began before the Republican period. Right? And and for me, uh, many people, in fact, that are other uh, scholars from the Republican period who argue that, in fact, that you know China didn't have census um, prior to the Republican period. And, and, and even though many of them knew about this late Qing census, they kind of dismissed it and say, well, it didn't really happen. It, you know, they didn't really carry that out in any effective way. And there's a lot of this discussion. And it's basically this way to dismiss anything that happened prior to 1911 or 1912. Um, but, but I think, um, as it turned out, um, Right after they begin to implement the census in the spring of 1909, uh, suddenly you have a range of uh, protests um, all over um, this uh, 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 northern and central China in particular, and and this is a really sense a uh, uh, protest that was triggered by the census, and so in this particular cases and a few other cases that that in which the census takers was being accused as uh, soul stealers was often misunderstanding that uh, in which some of the people who were being counted um, by the census takers uh, through the contacts right um, in the actual uh, process investigation um, that some of these people eventually died. And in, in, in one case, for instance, that you have the whole family who actually died, uh, probably uh, because of contentious disease after they have contact with the census takers. So suddenly that you have rumors being spread all over the counties and in some cases being uh, th- those rumors being circulated in other provinces as well and saying that the, the, um, the, soul, uh, the census taker were themselves actually soul stealers. Right? And, because, and that was a suggestion that they, the census taker was actually asking for different kinds of information because we didn't have this accusation of soul stealing prior to this, even though China have different kinds of census, right? So for me, there was a key indication that, in fact, there was a direct contact between the census takers um, who were representing the central government, not the local government, and the ordinary people, the villagers. And they were, in fact, asking for a new kind of information that triggered fears, widespread fear. And those um, protests were extremely widespread, too. Right. Um, Thank you. You actually, you... um bring up some of these stories here that people were afraid of soul stealing for the purpose of railroad construction, right? And there were rumors that a person would die in seven days after they were counted by a census taker. Um, Just really kind of interesting stories here that come out of a context in which you wouldn't think that soul stealing would arise, at least for me. Right, there was a different kinds of rumors. I think almost like that um, every local community have their own uh, version of the stories, and and I sort of look up some of the earlier uh, uh, case of uh, soul stealing. I think historian Philip Crimson he have you know written a, a very important books about it uh, much earlier about soul stealing. Say, right? and what I found is really interesting in this case is that uh, it, there's almost no exception. All the soul stealing accusation that uh, emerged during the census reform or the new census. Uh, 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 between 1909 to 1911s, um, actually happened in the same places, same province, in many cases, same county in which uh, the soul stealing panics also took place uh, mm-hmm. earlier. 
Except in the earlier case, the soul stealers, according to Philip Coons, right, were the outsiders, like traveling monks and so forth, who were being accused as soul stealing. And in this uh, new uh, um, moment, what you have is the accusation of the census takers are people that they already know. They are representing the government, became the, the soul stealers. And so that was, for me, that's a major shift. Again, it's one of those moments that you can see how old the resources, how old the uh, cultural or popular belief of being mobilized for a whole different purpose, by right? being conf- reconfigurated in this new uh, context. In this case, it's the whole belief of soul stealing. Right. That's so interesting. And what's also really interesting about this, and I'll just kind of mention this before we move on to another fascinating chapter, um, but you you bring up the work of Louise White, um, who's speaking with vampires is really, um, really formative um, for a, a lot of historians who think about rumor in history. And I think this um, chapter also um, makes a really large contribution to this kind of emerging historiography of rumor um, and really just brings up a very different way of thinking about what a source is. Right. So taking rumor seriously as part of historiography, I think, is, a, is really fascinatingly done here. Yeah, because I, I think for, for me, that's really interesting is that, that I, I try to respect those accusations, those claims, right? Because otherwise I would be biased against them and basically uh, taking the same position as the state and dismiss this as some kind of superstitious belief. Um, but at the same time, what I find was really interesting is that, again, come back to this uh, the, as a way to contrast this two moment of soul stealing uh, accusations. In the earlier moment that this was described by Philip Kuhn, at the end, the the emperor came in, he stepped in and said, well, we already investigated all these uh, so-called soul-stealing cases. In fact, that nothing actually happened, right? By making the claim, the state actually was able to position itself as the, uh, 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 um, as the mediator between the spiritual and the secular world. By claiming that, in fact, no one, nothing was retranspassing or transgressing this boundary. But in these later cases, what happened was that um, that the state essentially dismissed all these accusations and said this is really superstitious. And and for me, that that's really ironic because um, social surveys and census taking and social investigations are essentially practice that try to correct, uh, try to collect. Um, uh, empirical evidence as a way to understand the social mechanism, to understand the human world, right? So my, my argument there, in fact, that they, they, because of this shift from one mode of knowledge production to the other, they actually lack the capacity to deal with this kind of issues. So they actually, somehow they lost the ability to see the other side of the story. And so I think that was really showing you also that, you know, that, uh, the moment in which, um, the, the, the social world and the state, uh, uh, really being set up as two sides of, um, uh, uh, these two opposite categories. Right. Absolutely. Now, we sort of the next chapter shifts the focus to the Republican period, which for readers who don't work on um, Chinese history, uh, that's 1912 to 1949. And this chapter explores how research institutes and researchers used ideas of science and the nation and the nation to search for a new basis of political discourse and action. And the story here um, really turns to a fascinating discussion of the ways that researchers conceived the role of science um, in the reconstitution of China as a model 
modern nation. Now, you talk um, in this chapter very explicitly about the fact that there is no one definition of science in this context, but can you talk a little bit about um, what science, in quotes, meant for some of these researchers who are part of the story that you're telling here? Sure. Um, and, and I think you're right that at this moment that the science is something that's yet to be defined. But I think what is even more important for me is that the, the claims of being scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the rhetorical was extremely important that for every group of practitioners who are involved in the so-called scientific knowledge productions. Right? And and um, for them, of course, um being scientific often means, in this case, of in the context of social surveys, is really to produce what they con- consider as empirical evidence uh, of the social world. So producing facts uh, for many of them is really about practicing science. But as I try to describe in this chapter as well, that it shows, in fact, that what is being counted as facts it's, itself uh, has to be also uh, has to be investigated because, uh, as it turned out, um, uh, as in some of the 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 the, the cases that I show that, that that you have multiple uh um social investigators who are essentially doing things that are extremely similar uh in a certain way at the same time uh one investigator will could be seen as really being scientific and doing modern social science, and the other one would be seen as, as traditional scholars. So for me, uh, a large pack of being scientific is really what I call the self-fashioning uh, in the entire process of social uh, knowledge production, that they have to constantly tell themselves as well as others that they are in fact practicing science, um, even though the actual practice uh, are, are suggesting a whole different story there. Mm -hmm. And one of the fascinating parts of this story for me was this debate over the idea that scientific knowledge could be culturally and nationally specific. So you talk about the example of Fu Xinyan, who absolutely Mm -hmm. rejects this um, as a possibility. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think part of the, the, the debate um, is really say, sort of argue that um, the, 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 the debate between Fusina and, and, and his associates and the people who were practicing kosher, who argue that, that, that you know, there must be a, a Chinese science. Right. And, and, and Fusina really sort of reject that, that whole idea that the science is defined by national boundaries. And because uh, for him, the, the the, the claims of science is powerful precisely because you transcend cultural history or the nations. And, and so, and so he really sort of, in a way, the, that claims of universality was really, uh, for him, really important, uh, in sticking his position as, uh, a, a, a scientist. In this case, even though he's historian, as we know, that he was, um, uh, one of the major historians that, that emphasized on the correct, uh, the collection of empirical evidence. Now, other scholars who are, so, who are associated with, uh, national studies, um, uh, argues that, that, well, you could have science, but there was also something called Gaussian or national studies that was unique to China. And and for them too, there was a major shift or major departure from the older scholarship. Um, but even in that debate, so we, what I'm trying to argue in, in, at one level that they were very similar because they're both using science to to make claims about their own practice. At the same time, it's also that um, there's a major differences between them. But um, at the end of the day, I sort of argue that, you know, that the... the, the um, the, the people who won the debate, partly 
um, but because that they were able to make certain kind of claims that seems to be more persuasive uh, in that particular uh, cultural context, but also because like people like Fusin, um, for instance, were, they were supported by the state. And then so they have the tremendous resources to actually to, to put forward their, their agenda of um, um, social science. Thank you. That's really helpful. And it's that's also a really fascinating um, case that kind of speaks to a very contemporary debate that those of us in science studies and history of science are engaged in, where the emphasis now is so much um, historiographically on the importance of the local production of knowledge, right? And so many people right. want to argue that there are, you know, East Asian styles of ST, of science technology and society or Chinese styles of history and so on and so forth. So it's really interesting to see um, this kind of argument about the opposite of that um, coming out and kind of informing this larger trans-historical you know, context of this set of issues. Right. And of course, one of the irony too, that when, when they talk about trans, uh, transcultural and transhistorical, um, but you do see some of the older practice continue to exist in this, um, even amount of group um, that was uh, supported by Fusilian, that uh, you do see, for instance, that uh, um, uh, the traditional travel writings, for instance, the, the particular type of writings, uh, remain rather central in the actual process of knowledge production. But I'm not suggesting this is sort of essentially a Chinese style, but instead I'm trying to suggest that in fact that this is more like, um, um, and see how, uh, um, um, how people make claims about the, the fact that they're producing, uh, 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 truthful knowledge, right? So for me, um, the, the, the story there is uh, the actual everyday practice become very important to try to understand exactly what they mean when they're producing scientific knowledge or producing truth or becoming an observer of a, a, a reliable observer of the nation states. Mm-hmm. And through that process, I really sort of begin to realize that, you know, uh, sentiments and feeling become very important in their writings. Oh, goody. And, I was going to ask you to talk about that next. Excellent. So I'm sorry. Can yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, that, that, that is really one of the central aspects of the book as well, because, I, I, you know, from, even from the very beginning and say that, you know, the whole Chinese social survey movement wasn't really, you know, something that was simply accepting uh, the West, West, so-called Western methodologies, but it was really driven by, you know, or, or put it this way, they were not simply accepting the Western methodology because that uh, that particular methodology was superior or self-evidence, right? On the other hand, it was precisely because uh, they were driven by a certain kind of emotional uh, 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 needs, right, to fulfill this so-called lacks, um, to, to make sure that China, in fact, have the same kind of scientific knowledge. So um, you can see that emotion sort of went through the entire book in, in that particular way. But in this, in the particular case that we talking about here that you can actually see um, particular individuals, how do they mobilize their own feeling, talk about their own feeling, become a very essential part of uh, their process of knowledge production. In fact, they have, as I said, uh, as I show in this book, there was multiple uh, social investigators, right? They actually have to report their own personal feelings um, to their own institutes and, and to record the feelings. And, and in fact, that was just so, in fact, they were suffering. In fact, that they, they somehow become, uh, they, they were compelled to believe that, that they, you know, they're, they're becoming now a reliable observer of the nation precisely because they suffer. And so the, the confessional mode of writing uh, become part of the uh, 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 process to authenticate the kind of empirical data that they, they were producing uh, in the field. 
And for me, that was really sort of very, very interesting, but also shows that in fact that you can't simply say that, you know, the, the, the Western methodology was actually superior, uh, but there was a, a actual mechanism going on, uh, on the ground. Right. And for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, um, I'll just sort of mention that the um, this chapter uses a lot of field notes and diaries of researchers to do this in a really fascinating way. And this is just a really compelling set of sources um, that you give us a lot of uh, background on and excerpts from. And so I really appreciated that. So thank you yeah. for that. Well, thank you. I have to say that, you know, that was, uh, I probably used only maybe less than 1% of what I have. In fact, it was, as, you know, as, as we mentioned at the very beginning, there were so many social work surveys being done. Uh, many of them actually have few notes, um, in part because uh, a lot of those was being seen as a training process. As I said, that uh, we calling one's feelings become one of the prerequisites of uh, social scientific knowledge production. So they are actually required to write down their feelings. Um, because of so many of them, it's really hard to actually get a handle on exactly what's going on. But I have read also so many that I begin to realize that there's a, that almost a, there was a template that they kind of become very similar if you look at each one of them and it's almost repeating in the same patterns, right? And I, so I do believe that it's almost like a partially and it's this like a, like a ritual process in, in which you have to, to make the claims that in fact you suffer a lot uh, in the field so that, you know, whatever you're producing there must be, must be valuable, must be truthful, must be credible. Wow. And so, I mean, I wonder if you could argue from there that not just as, is this um, use of social surveys and training producing um, modern, sort of producing society in a new way and producing fact in a new way, but it's also producing a new kind of way of experiencing and making legible sentiment? Yeah, I, I think I think I think that would be a fair a fair uh, observation. And also, I would I would go a little bit further and say that I think I did mention a bit in the in the book too. Is is also a process of producing this observer mm-hmm. become a you know who is a a, a a a a national citizen who are now you know taking up this position of being a, a credible observer of the nation. So you're actually producing a new kind of political subjects in the process as well. Right. And the, um, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I'll, I'll move on to the next chapter from this, but I'll also just point out for listeners that there's a really, um, fascinating discussion also that you give us here of, um, the training process for social science researchers at this research institute of land economics, um, which was also really interesting. Um, so, so yes. Yeah, so thank you for this chapter. I loved this chapter. And are you just kind of incidentally, are you planning on doing anything more with this wealth of field notes and diaries that you have that you didn't have a chance to use for the book? Um, not at the moment, not at the moment. I, I think, I hope maybe some other researchers would, you know, would pick it up. There's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a fascinating personal archive. Um, I'd love to see more of that. Okay, but but speaking of time, let's move on to time, um, time, space, and state effect, which is what you talk about in the next chapter. And this, for me, was a really um, kind of a wow moment in this chapter. Um, this chapter focuses on the 1928 census and its role in creating new ways of imagining time and space and the way they constitute individuals and new types of individuals. Now, in particular, um, one of the things I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, is the importance, 
as you tell us, of a sense of simultaneity in constructing groups, sort of mentioning that the, the census in 1928 placed a good deal of emphasis on the idea of capturing the state of a population instantaneously. So can you talk about this um, sort of new way of conceptualizing and manifesting time? Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the starting points for that is uh, is, the, is the contrast to the earlier census that we just mentioned, the census that came out in 1909 to 1911. In that particular census, the Qing state did not actually specify uh, when the census should be done, and certainly not in a very uh, uh, narrow window. I mean, there was they wanted to get it done within a few years. But in this, uh, as a contrast, when you look at the, the 1928 census that was proposed by um, the KMT, um, there was a very strong emphasis on, uh, emphasis on uh, the needs of carrying out the census uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, by which I mean uh, within several hours. They had to tr stop all the traffic and uh, etc. Now, in practice, uh, uh, it didn't quite happen except in a few cities, particularly in Nanjing, and in most other cases, they were not able to carry out that kinds of uh, operation because the lack of, you know, uh, uh, the, the lack of the, the, their, their inability to control the bureaucracy and they didn't have direct control in many places in China. No, but, but it does imply that, in fact, you know, they're thinking about the population in a different way, um, thinking about uh, uh, creating a new sense of solidarity, right? This is the moment that actually was not just about counting the people, but it also create a condition in which the people really felt that they were part of this larger social body, that you can imagine themselves in relation to the larger context. Just imagine that you would, you know, if you go to work in that particular day, particular morning, and suddenly all the traffic stops, and everyone was, you know, sitting there waiting to be counted. Right. I think that was the moment that you can imagine that how, how would one rethink one's uh, social and political conditions. And I think that for me, uh, it, it was a really important turning point as well. That is conceptually, as I said, because um, a lot of these things didn't quite happen the way that the, the, that the KMT wanted. Right. Absolutely. So. In addition to talking about the, um, the the importance of this new way of conceptualizing and, and physically manifesting a shared experience of time and simultaneity, this chapter also looks at the role of a discourse of superstition, right? And you, you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier in our discussion, but um, you look very specifically at it in this chapter and talk about the way that surveys and these research studies were used to essentially define what superstition was in a new way, right? And to identify certain groups um, are people as superstitious and single them out for transformation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one, one of the difficulty when I was looking on uh, uh, in the history of social survey movement in China was to say, well, you know, what does that all mean uh, um, to talk about social surveys? Because everything seems to be social survey for them, at, particularly at that moment. Um, nothing was really clearly defined. And, and oftentimes it's also very difficult to track down the relationship of how one set of survey uh, were actually related to the others. But at the same time, if we are talking about this is not just an intellectual shift, but also a cultural shift. We do see this emergency of a culture of facts in which you do see that there's a, a range of practice really came into 
being around this time. And so, um, so what I wanted to do here was really to show, in fact, that, well, you have talked about stances, but you can also talk about this anti-superstitious campaign, uh, and talk about the kind of social survey that was, you know, associated specifically with, uh, with this, uh, um, with that. And so, uh, in this particular case, um, uh, what is really interesting is that I, I sort of begin to see the survey itself is actually not about the specific data that they were producing, at least in this particular case, but it's about the process itself. Um, because uh, the whole practice of social survey essentially introduces a whole different way of thinking about the human world, thinking about the human condition. In this case, uh, categories like superstitious was being constructed, um, which you also begin to see this category be was becoming part of the census ca categories uh, beginning in 1928, right? And, and in this particular set of um, anti-superstitious campaign, we see a range of survey being commissioned by um, the KMT government to, to target particular groups. Uh, as it turned out, uh, many of these people who are being investigated also begin to appropriate uh, the language of social science and say that we're not doing superstitions. We're, this is just a, 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 a charity operation. So um, the argument there, therefore, is that um, surveys become this particular instrument that mediates uh, the interaction between the government and these particular groups who are being investigated in the process really transform uh, not just the government's understanding of the social world, but also how these groups and people understood themselves in relation to the government and the states. And so for me, that, you know, that was the crucial point as more than the actual, uh, survey data itself, but it was a process of transformation, how people begin to, you know, use those, those survey categories to rearticulate themselves. Right. And, and this is actually part of, um, I mean, this actually leads perfectly into the final substantive chapter here before the epilogue, which is um, this I, this chapter where you really look in detail at a concept that you bring up at the beginning of the book and a concept in which your dis the discussion you just um, gave us really fits nicely into, which is this idea of China as a social laboratory. Um, now, a major contribution of the book as a whole, um, really, is the development of this idea that China becomes a social laboratory in the early 20th century. And there's a lot of really fascinating aspects of this that you talk about in the context of this chapter um, for, you know, so that we can not keep you all day um, because I could keep you all day. This is, there's so much fascinating stuff. Um, I want to ask you in, uh, in particular about one, um, what, what seems to me to be a really crucial contribution that this chapter is making, um, which is the point that Chinese social scientists turn their attention in this period from the urban world and urban China to the rural world. Um, and really in the process, you argue, create the very notion of the peasant as an object of investigation. That seems totally crucial to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. I think that um, one of the things, as I said at the very beginning, too, is that I, I try not to show that, in fact, this is a story about that, that uh, China simply accepted those practice or methodologies. Uh, instead, what I'm trying to show that um, that um, China, as it turned out, become the ground zero of the uh, social experiments, not just for the Chinese social scientists themselves, but in this particular case, also for American social scientists. Um, the cases that I mentioned, for instance, you actually have social scientists, American social scientists, who actually uh, use the specific 
uh, term quote unquote social laboratory, since China is the social laboratory for us. Right? So they, they themselves, interestingly, didn't see China as a unique case as well. So in fact, in, in the way that we can actually talk about the diversities of uh, conception and practice of social science, uh, even among the American social scientists themselves, right? there are people who try to essentialize China, but there were people who actually see, well, China, this is one of the uh, laboratory. But because the, the size of China, uh, China become very personal laboratory for them. And then for the Chinese social scientists, increasingly that they first, they adopted the American methodology, but very quickly they sort of begin to reject it and say, well, actually we didn't have those industrial conditions that they were, you know, investigating. But we have the rural society. So then you have a range of liberal social scientists sort of begin to, you know, switch to um, the, uh, um, uh, the rural and focus on the countryside. And and was in the process, the Soviet category, the, the peasantry um, was being mobilized and appropriated by some of the social scientists. And, and somehow, um, it's a process is not, I, I think you still need a lot of further additional investigation is exactly how, uh, how, but perhaps we could never find a story because so many people are talking about it. Uh, at one particular moment, then you can sort of begin to see the terminology of passion alone in, uh, suddenly proliferates. Mm-hmm. And whether the liberal social scientists or the communists, they all started, they all started to use that particular term to talk about, um, the rural society. But I think that was what is really interesting here that, that, um, the, the, the rural, the rural become the focus of social investigation actually have an impact, um, for the American social scientists as well. For those who, uh, who try to engage China at the beginning were all also increasingly being convinced by the Chinese social scientists, by the Chinese colleagues, that, that in fact we need to look at the rural, right? So their visions of China also uh, was shaped by the Chinese themselves. Right. Um, and, and there's, thank you so much. And, and there's so much also going on in this chapter that I'll just um, kind of point to for listeners. I mean, you, you talk about the um, Mao Zedong's role in all of this. You talk about the uh, surveys that include lots of different kinds of materials, including one that includes the entire script of a play. You talk about turning of social surveys into an anti-colonial instrument. It's just an extraordinarily rich story. So, so thank you so much for this sure. book and, um, and thank you also for making the time to talk about this today. I know I've kept you for a very long time, so I'm going to give you the opportunity to, um, to wrap up by, uh, asking, is there anything that, uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about today that you'd like to mention in particular for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the book? Um, well, perhaps maybe just uh, um, um, two points that I didn't quite mention in the beginning. And, and I think one of that is that uh, I think for me the challenge of this particular book was that it's not a kind of conventional uh, institutional history. It's not a biography. It's not an intellectual history that is tracking in ideas. And so for me, from the very beginning, has been a real challenge because I'm trying to talk about the emergency of a categories that change the way we understand the world. So for me, was, I wasn't exactly sure where do I find the sources because you don't have a ready-made body of material in the archive, mm-hmm. right, about the history of the fact uh, waiting for me. And and then at the same time, is that almost anything that came out from that particular moment, as I mentioned earlier, they kind of related to the rise of the culture of fact. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, where do I draw the 
boundaries. In other words, for my research operation, in other words, what should be included, what should be excluded, uh, was a huge challenge for me. So one of these things that eventually what I did was to sort of look at what I call the history of practice. Um, instead of tracking, uh, individual intellectuals, certainly there was, you know, quite a few of them have been mentioned in the book, but I'm not trying to check the life stories that much, but look at how, um, this, uh, social investigator actually do the field work, um, in the, Every day, and also a lot of the investigators were not major intellectuals. They were ordinary uh, people, uh, educated uh, students, or teachers, or bureaucrats. And those people's names are not being recorded in you know any major history books at all. In fact, we you know some of the people we don't even know their names. But for me, I think it's important to track down the story of uh, of their everyday uh, life when they were um, conducting surveys. So, that, I mean, that was one of the, for me, methodologically, that was a challenge uh, uh, to try to write a history of practice. And I think another very minor point is about um, one of the central arguments there, too, as I, I was mentioning I think earlier, that it's not so much about the empirical data that they actually produce, but it's very much with the entire uh, uh, moment of the early 20th century China, or in fact, the first half of the 20th century was really seen as a moment in which um, the practice of facts or this culture of facts was really gaining tractions. In other words, it's really the process of training people or to convincing um, the Chinese citizens that they, they need to have uh, knowledge about facts, about their own society, about themselves, about their own body. I think it was the, that culture being in, you know, instituted. Uh, and I think that was the story about that process more than the actual production of facts. As you can see, um, they're producing all kinds of facts that are often contradictory to one another. They may not, uh, the, the type of information that they produce at the end may not be commercial, may not be easily be translated in, uh, 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 um, into actions. But at the same time, that's the moment when facts became a very important things um, for, 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 for Chinese culture. Right. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on that, what's next for you? What's your uh, what project are you working on now, or what's on the horizon? Um, I'm working on a new project called, uh, or tentatively called, the Qing Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> um, it's was really about um, um, the renewal, the renewal of the Qing's imperial ambitions um, near its end. So um, that was, in fact, um, based on what my, my preliminary research, at least, that this shows that, in fact, that a lot of uh, Qing elites, both uh, government officials and as well as educated elites outside of the government, was talking about that the needs of um, building the Qing into a modern colonial uh, empire. And I think that story, uh, for me at least, it sounds really fascinating because it has a tremendous implication uh, for uh, understanding 20th century China, um, um, despite you know none of those operations actually you know uh, became successful because the chain collapsed. Absolutely. Well, I'll also look forward to interviewing you about that book when it's done. So it sounds like a great project as well. You have to wait for a long time. Okay. <laughs> I'll be here. I'll be here. Um, but you should not have to be here throughout all that. So I'm going to let you go. <laughs> um, thank you, Tong. We've taken up a lot of your time and thank you so much for making the time, um, to talk with us today. It's just, it's a fantastic book. It was a wonderful read and I learned a great deal from it. So, um, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. 
Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Bye. Thanks. This is Carla Nappi, and you've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.